I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Eric Holthouse was once called the Rebel Nerd of Meteorology by Rolling Stone magazine, and is a journalist who writes about climate change. In 2013, sitting in an airport, he burst into tears having just read the latest IPCC report and took to Twitter to share the impact, as a scientist studying climate change, that this knowledge was having on him emotionally. In one, he wrote, I'm starting my 11th year working on climate change, including the last four in daily journalism. Today I went to see a counsellor about it. There are days where I literally can't work. I'll read a story and shut down for the rest of the day. We don't deserve this planet. There are many days when I think it would be better off without us. In another he wrote, To me, our emotional psychological response is the story on climate change. It defines how and if we will solve the problem. In scientific circles, emotional impact is rarely discussed. Eric also gave up flying, something which led to Fox News branding him a kook, respect, and talked publicly about that too. He writes regularly for Grist and describes himself as a dad, husband, beekeeper, game maker. It was in an article about Eric that I first came across the term pre-traumatic stress disorder, a topic we'll explore more in a future podcast. How does that impact the imagination, I wondered. So, when I chatted to Eric, I started by asking him to tell us a bit about that journey he went on, of injecting very real human emotion into a field that usually limits itself to facts, figures and data. The the whole time, I, I just feel like I need to figure out how to how to match what I'm feeling with what with, with yeah with this setup that I that I talked about the the this mismatch of of what we need to do and what we are doing and there's a lot of of emotional fallout from that at least that I've feel been feeling in uh, among almost all of my friends we know when we talk about climate I, I realize that this is not a rare thing to feel this sort of hopelessness mixed with um, idealism mixed with prone to ra- radical thinking in terms of well if it says you know if the client if the science says we have to be radical then what's the best way that I feel comfortable with being radical you know what is what does being radical even mean as far as the flying thing it felt really a lot like sort of an, a no-brainer, even sort of boring result from running my own carbon footprint through a calculator, seeing exactly what I, you know, what was my biggest footprint and what I could do to change that. It just felt like a really normal thing to do in response, and I was really shocked, honestly, in the resp- in in the feedback I got after that decision, both positive and negative, that it seemed to be so out of nowhere or something that, wow, I can't even fathom not flying. It just, it seems, you know, especially in hindsight, it seems like such a luxury. The vast majority of people on earth will never set foot on an airplane. And yet we have circles of of people who couldn't imagine their lives without it. Um, It just seems like a fundamental inequality of our time and and that's exactly the sort of things that that need to sort of be rethought in a world that is constrained by climate change over the over the last 
few years or so since I made that decision, I think that it's really, it's changed the way I see the world. It's brought me to think of the world as a, as a much larger and more fascinating place than I thought before and to focus more intently on the places that I live and the people around me and, you know, places to take vacation that are within, you know, a hundred miles of where I live rather than thinking to have to cross an ocean to, to go for, <laughs> for a week's vacation. So I think that anytime you can, can see the world in a new way, that seems more in line with reality. I feel like that's a good thing. And that might get a little bit to your question about imagination, that so much of what we experience in this really weird early 21st century, weird in historical context, I mean, we do things now that are almost like magic, even considered 50 years ago, mm. that it, it just seems like we take for granted how quickly the world is changing and how strange our, our world is in terms of instant communication with pretty much anyone on the planet. Both the potential and the the, um, the problems are greater than ever before, it feels like. At the same time, you know, we are, we're, we're solving problems pretty quickly too in terms of poverty and human health and public health. And those, those problems are being solved very quickly, but we are substituting them for a larger problem. So given that context of this weird, weird world that we're living in, so much of what we assume to be true actually isn't true. They're just received truths. They're, they're just like, you know, this is how you build a city or this is how universities work or this is what a uh, road looks like. Um, these are all, these are all names we sort of, sort of accept, accept true, true that aren't necessarily true at all, not even remotely true. You know, there are so many different options for how to practice education or how mm. to transport ourselves or how to organize a democracy or, you know, we don't have to always continue on with the system that we have, especially if that system is broken. And I think that is what climate change is making easy for some of us to realize is that given the necessity of radical change, it's time immediately to, it gives us an excuse <laughs> to rethink virtually everything. I, I look to someone like Elon Musk, you know, who is a problematic figure in some ways, but in a lot of ways is a model of a 21st century visionary in the term, in the way of, of saying, you know, this is how you build and operate a, a space program. You know, he's spent he spent a half a billion dollars in five years to, from the ground up, create an entirely new rocket and way of getting into space that's on order of magnitude cheaper than anything ever done before and reusable from that point with a less, less carbon footprint. And in the same time, NASA has developed, it actually in, in, in twice that time, NASA has spent the same amount of money to develop one single launch pad. 
in Florida, and they may actually turns out they may actually have to scrap that launch pad. Like it, it just is like you know when you get into an institutionalized way of of thinking, there's a lot of waste of time and a waste of money and a waste of of brain power of creativity that goes along mm. with that. And, and you know there's a lot of people in the in the climate community that are looking to institutions like the government or like NASA or, you know, large scale institutions to come up with some sort of silver bullet problem or silver bullet solution. You know, like surely these are the people that know the problem. And, you know, if we only elected the right mix of representatives to Congress, that surely they would pass the perfect climate legislation and we'll all be saved. But I think that that's really delusional at this point. You know, we've gone 30 years with that mindset. And if anything, the problem's gotten much worse. You know, that, that notion of, of pre-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder, you know, it strikes me that m- most people, when you talk to them, not everybody, but most people are aware on some level of climate change, particularly younger people who've grown up with it in school and it's just part of everything. You know, how, how do you, I suppose, firstly, how do you see post-traumatic, pre-traumatic stress disorder in relation to climate change kind of manifesting in the world around us? And do you think that, that denial, that climate denial is in some ways a form, a manifestation of pre-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, of course. Yeah, really, I think so. Um, and I think that that inaction or doing small actions like recycling or taking your reusable bag to go shopping with you, those are also forms of denial. I mean, anytime we're, we're not acting on the scale necessary to solve the problem, these are all ways of tricking ourselves to think that we're either the problem's not as big as what it is or that we're powerless to solve it or that our actions are are having some effect and it's they're all coping strategies for us to not to avoid thinking about imagining that change that's actually necessary or imagining the world that we want to have rather than um, sometimes it's easier to just say oh well this is just too big of a thing so you know accepting failure is a way of denying that we have a chance to change that that future thinking that someone else is going to 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 somehow solve the problem is also a way of denying our own responsibility i think change also is a trauma for a lot of people especially radical change on the scale that scientists say is necessary it's a scary thing to think about i mean it's a, it's scary to think about especially if you don't see any of your friends acting like it's a it's a big deal, then you're also inclined. I mean, I think there's, there's research that goes along um, with that, that, that at least in, in meteorology where I was trained, um, there are studies saying that in order to take shelter in a tornado warning, you need to have the signal from scientists or for some, from some official source that the tornado is real and it's heading towards you. And that needs to be someone that you trust. 
but also you need to verify that with with someone directly in terms of I need to talk like physically talk with someone nearby or see other people taking action before I take action. There needs to be some sort of visual or personal communication to verify in our brains that this is a this is a major disaster that's imminent that I need to change any like you know drop everything and 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 do and and take radical action. I, I feel like we're in a similar scenario with climate change is that it's really clear that no one or like very, very few people are radically changing their lives um, or or even advocating for radical change. I think even fewer are are trying to do that in a way that matches the way our brains work um, that that we need to have. We need to be doing this together as a community. And that's the only way that we will be able to convince ourselves that it's actually a real thing, especially when you can't see, like you can't look out your window. Uh, actually, increasingly, you are able to um, look out your window and see the direct impacts of climate change. We all have little signs uh, that, that those things are happening, like an early spring or hearing about it on the news more um, recently. And do, um, you, do you have a sense but, of that, 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 that sort of, that sense that the, the the further we get into it and the more it becomes manifest around us and the more people experience traumatic extreme weather events that that the more the less likely the, the the further we get into it the less likely it is that we're going to be really imaginative you know that the more the further we get into it the more our imagination contracts under that sort of pressure Mm -hmm. And the less likely it is that we can design a really imaginative way out of it. Does that sort of resonate with you? Does that feel like a like a a good analysis? Yeah, I, I, I like you've done a lot more <laughs> um, research into this exact question than I have, but I would ima I would imagine that <laughs> um, say ten years from now, maybe we'll see the first uh, ice-free Arctic summer in the next ten years. Or we'll see some really tremendously major tipping points starting to change. You know, we're already seeing things that would be considered tremendous 10 years ago, I would say, um, with, um, with, with, with flooding and, um, fires. and fires. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I think, happening quicker than people would have thought 10 years ago. I mean, the studies in Antarctica are also really terrifying, I think, um, to me personally. But the more those those sorts of narratives are pushed forward, the the sort of it's too late because look at all the stuff that's already happening. And on our current path, two degrees C is is almost impossible at this point. And, you know, moving the goalposts will continue to happen because the goals that we've set are really incompatible with the way we're solving the problem or trying to solve the problem. So, so that mismatch will, will widen, I think, which create, it gives more opportunity for that sort of cognitive dissonance in terms of our brains, our, our brains are constantly being encouraged to give up. I feel like by the mm. stories we're telling ourselves and when you're in, when you're in, um, 
when I, you know, when I heard you summarize your your theory or your read on on this problem, I thought back to sort of survival instincts. Ten thousand years ago, if you're being if you're being chased or something, um, and you're in an emergency scenario where it it, it it makes sense that that your brain would shut off parts of of your your thinking to um, to focus on the present and surviving the present. At the same time, there needs to be like it feels like there is an evolutionary advantage to creativity in those emergency in in those emergency scenarios too. You know, you need to be able to think quickly and 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 respond and react. You know, to what's happening immediately right in front of you. It's partly my job as a journalist, or you know, your job as a storyteller of 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 what a vision of the future could look like, or a vision of a response to climate change could look like. To say this sort of dystopian, all is lost vision is only one possible future. You know, it's definitely not likely. I mean, it's definitely not, it doesn't have to be likely. It doesn't have to be even, and it's definitely not the only possibility. I'm just, I'm just not sure. I'm honestly not sure why society keeps reinforcing that vision rather than reinforcing a more positive vision mm. of the future. I think there is a little bit of, uh, of, of that. It's usually matched with technology, though, the positive vision of the future. So saying, like, we will overcome all of our earthly constraints because of technology. Um, I mean, there's obviously problems with that, too, with inequal, like, inequal, inequal access to that technology and what the consequences of developing that technology have. I don't know if you've read recently, there was this... Um, I think it's a forthcoming book, or maybe it's already out. There's this idea of prophets and wizards in terms of looking at the future. So it's basically matches to a degrowth response to climate change or a technological, like, ramped up growth to, in response to climate change. Like, either we get these, like, new magic, magic energy machines that are zero carbon as quickly as possible and spend whatever it takes to get there. Or we retreat and and focus on cutting emissions as quickly as possible because that's the only option that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, and both of them are rational, I think, and both of them are are reasonable approaches. I'm just wondering if there has to be some sort of blend of those um, in order to paint a sort of like more inclusive vision that's hopeful that appeals to everyone. One of the things that you wrote about recently was about the Trump's um, sort of attempt to eradicate climate science, which you called the 21st century witch uh, in a book burning. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that there's that sense of you can only really imagine the future if you have some kind of a grounding in the past or some kind of an mm -hmm. understanding of the past. What, what, what impact have you seen that having in the kind of climate science community that sort of assault over the last year i think i think there's a natural defense that scientists are defending their work and and trying to explain why it's important but they're also i think more fundamentally finding a political voice and saying that 
the vision of the future that we want to have is a vision that respects truth and that respects knowledge and that re respects that that past the work that we've done to uh, to to understand the past and understand why we are where we are and use that to inform what needs to happen in the future to make a a world that works better for everyone you know if anything i feel like this sort of assault on imagination assault on truth and coordinated effort to instill that that future that benefits only the select few i think that that is having at least immediately having sort of a counter effect of empowering people to make their voices louder but mm. but that i think that can't continue forever because at least for the moment for the moment meaning the last 30 years the people that are really in charge have been really good at making sure that that status quo continues so i'm i'm just like i don't know keep going back and forth with like what um what would it take to break that stone and how um how because i don't think it will be I don't think it will will look like you know one specific person standing up and saying here's the vision that we have to work towards. I think it's going to be everyone feeling like it's achievable and hopeful and and necessary and appealing to, enough to do it themselves because this problem's so big that it has to be done from all sides by everyone hmm. starting right away and the only way that's going to happen is if it seems like it's something in people's best interest that they do themselves. There's a question that I've asked everybody that I've interviewed for this project, which has been, if, if it had been Eric rather than Donald who had been elected president a year ago and you had run on a platform of Make America Imaginative Again <laughs> uh, and you had seen that actually... Uh, it was of vital importance that whether you're talking about education or business or science or whatever um, in community life, that that, uh, that, that revitalizing people's imagination and sense of possibility was fundamentally the most important thing that, that, that had to be prioritized over the next five or ten years. What might you do in your first hundred days in office? That's a good question. Direct participatory democracy at the local level. In terms of groups of people, you know, five to ten to a hundred meeting together to talk about their hopes and dreams and how to make it happen is probably the most important thing that we could be doing right now. I don't know how to incentivize that. I'm not like a policy person. I'm not a marketing person or or like a activist or uh, organizer or anything I don't know how to get people excited enough to do that but I think that a world where that is happening is really hopeful so we talked a bit about how pre-traumatic stress disorder affects people I wonder how I watched Leonardo DiCaprio's film whatever it was mm -hmm. called before the ocean oh yeah mm -hmm. or something and and that struck me as being a phenomenal example of pre-traumatic stress yeah. disorder in the in the super wealthy in that actually mm -hmm. 
he was prepared to fly around the world, talk to lots of different people, and never once did he question his own wealth, his own power, what he could do himself. It was all about what people, you know, he went, when he went to India and said to the woman in India, so when's India going to reduce their emissions? And she said, fuck off. <laughs> what are you talking about? We like go back to America and sort it out. Why are you coming here asking me what we can do? And I wonder how you think maybe that kind of pre-traumatic stress disorder plays out among the, among the very wealthy. Yeah, I, th I think that this is a really good insight because I, I was struck by that exact same scene where um, it just felt really weird to have this multimillionaire, internationally famous person basically talking down to an environmental activist in India <laughs> saying, no, I'm not the problem. You guys are the problem. It just <laughs> felt so backward yeah. to me. You know, that said, you know, his... Oscar acceptance speech was the single most important, if you want to use that word, moment in the history of climate change discussion online. I mean, it was the moment when, if you search like the term climate change on Google searches, that that's that's the spike is during his his acceptance speech and like a day afterwards. Mm. So it's weird that he, you know is simultaneously marshalling all of this sort of latent interest and enthusiasm in learning about climate change and, and motivating people to take it seriously. And at the same time, I think, I mean, I don't want to like analyze him, but I, I guess that, that's sort of partly my job and what you asked me to do, but um, feels blinded by what society expects of him in the rest of his life in terms of you must maintain this certain type of lifestyle. I, I wrote a couple of, of sort of critical essays on um, Obama during his second term saying, you know, why do you continue to use Air Force One like you're, you're doing? Like, wouldn't it make sense to like have the next presidential campaign be done strictly by bus or something, if you're really going to think, if you're going to say publicly that climate change is one of the biggest problems we've ever faced as a, as a human species, <laughs> like, uh, it makes sense to attack that problem and lead by individual example. So I think that the rich and, and powerful, like what people think that people that we think of as leaders, that they're not doing that in their own lifestyles, I think is a real disservice to the rest of us because, you know, for the first, you know, two thirds of our conversation just now, we're talking about what it, what it takes to, um, to intellectually process this dissonant vision of the world that we're seeing, you know, simultaneously no change and radical change at the same time. Mm -hmm. And wondering how each of us can fit into that and like, obviously feeling hopeless because we're not seeing anything happening. Um, under, or I mean, understandably feeling really weird about that um, and expecting it all to just die in our lifetimes. A lot of us are. And, and when we see, um, when we see, um, and this is, you know, a big talking point of climate deniers too, is like, well, when 
you know, when Al Gore gives up his mansion and his lifestyle, mm-hmm. then I'll start paying attention. But he's not. So that's proof that it's not a big deal. If he doesn't think that it's uh, important enough to change his own actions, then why should I? It's a super compelling, you know, rebuttal <laughs> to the climate community. It's like, if you're not doing it yourself, then why should I? Mm-hmm. So, it, and, and this comes up over and over and over again to in, in terms of climate change reporting, you know, in my little micro world of climate change journalists, we get in these debates together um, about, you know, should we f- be flying to cover stories on climate change? And I say, no, like <laughs> it's not necessary. Like I've written a whole book about climate change happening all over the world, interviewing people from all over the world and never once set a foot on a plane to cover it. Brilliant. So it's not, it's not impossible. <laughs> I mean, you, you can call people on the phone or talk to them on Skype sometimes on multiple continents in the same day. And, and, you know, it's not the same thing as being there, but also it it requires you to give more of a voice to the people that are actually living there and going through it rather than helicoptering in and thinking that you're going to be the one to tell the story better than other people. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, that was my criticism of, of Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie was it's just like, that's, that's how that's what how society tells you to make a climate change movie is fly around the world, yeah. put yourself on a glacier that's melting, and therefore you have now you have something to say about climate change because you've been there and you've seen it with your own eyes. But meanwhile, there's tons of people that are actually living there and going through it every day whose stories aren't being told. Yeah. So native communities or um or people that are just totally left out of the of the um, of the narrative, um, and those that. are the voices that that are are really powerful, I think, in telling um, the story of what is happening and what needs to happen. If you had just any last thoughts of any, I haven't asked you that any questions that have stimulated. Just if you had any last thoughts on the question of imagination and uh, mm-hmm. you know what I talked about at the beginning, just if there's anything that is left unsaid more than more than almost anyone you probably have such a wealth of knowledge of following movement that you've started and the kinds of solutions that are coming out of these communities and and the kinds of things that that people um it i would imagine that it changes people's view of what is possible when they see it happening around them and again i feel like that's the theme that that i'm in my rambling answers (laughs) answers are <laughs> it, it, i'm talking about we are seeing changes happening in terms of the natural world is changing in front of us we're see we're constantly being reinforced those those dire news stories and so it makes sense for our brain to fill in the gaps of well what's likely to happen in the future is for this to continue to keep getting worse and it feels so unstoppable and so large that um that must be, you know, where this is all heading. Um, that, that it's just such a shame that that's what is sort of that's the imagination, um, or that's where our imagination goes right now is because there aren't compelling or widely circulated alternatives to that narrative. It feels like um, 
it, it, a lot of times people think of the kinds of radical changes that are necessary, like imagining a world without air travel, at least for a while until we can invent something that is zero carbon <laughs> that does the same sort of task, whether that be like VR or some sort of, you know, other type of like tra- travel technology, Hyperloop or something. It's easy to think, you know, when when we're expecting to fail or when we're expecting the world to look a lot of people's vision, I think, of the year 2050 is like suburbs exactly as they are now, but everyone has this weird gadget attached to your chimney that captures all of the carbon from your house or something like that. Like, <laughs> like that's like we're living the same lifestyle, except we just needed to buy this thing that was missing that fixes everything, because that's a lot easier to imagine than than rethinking fundamentally like every part of our life, even though our world is going through fundamental changes all the time. Mm. Um, you know, the internet, I feel like is a fundamental change or having the sum of human knowledge in your pocket at all times is a fundamental change. Um, those are sorts of things that, that we, we, we didn't, or like, you know, all of a sudden having a climate denier in the white house is a fundamental change Mm. that happened overnight. There are fundamental changes that, can happen that are even necessary that that feel like they're impossible but only because that's what we're telling ourselves uh, and, you know saying like oh that's not a practical thing to work for well it, it might not seem practical if your imagination is limited to to you know the way the world is right now so but again you know like i would i'm really excited for your book <laughs> because i'm i'm like I'm interested to see what other people think about how to actually create a world where this imagination is fostered mm-hmm. or how, like how to make that happen. Cause I, I don't know. I mean, I, I might know that that's necessary, but I have no idea how to make it, make it actually happen. Mm-hmm.